Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. The Day of Pentecost, Ecumenism, Magical Realism, and the Environment. The Trump era and the rise of the religious right in the U.S. and in Brazil. Azusa Street and the empowering of the poor. A few Lord of the Rings references sprinkled in there for good measure. Okay, that right there is the recipe for today's conversation. We've got it all today, folks. Something for everyone. Really, really rich. Today, we have two very special guests, one of them a professor of mine from grad school. The other is a new friend and colleague in the Anglican Church in Brazil. And each one of us have a Pentecostal background, an interest in theology and the social sphere and ecumenical conversations. My guests just, you know, happen to have PhDs in these areas. They also have a trove of rich stories about how Pentecostalism in the United States and Latin America shape the modern Christian imagination, and how they interact with institutional Christianity, how they affect the lives of the poor, and challenge the church to a more sensitive witness in our time. So if you listened to last week's episode, you may notice that I had my schedule a little off. Sorry about that. We will not be hearing a Lambeth wrap-up conversation today. Well, you know what? Sorry, not sorry, because today's conversation is so rich. I have no doubt that you'll enjoy it. And we'll get the scoop about Lambeth at a later time. Looking forward to that. Final housekeeping note, we're trying a slightly longer episode format today to give the conversations a little more room to breathe leave in a few more of those fun little rabbit trails and see how you like it. Anytime you have feedback, encouragements, or suggestions, feel free to email me at ambernoel at livingchurch.org. And please, please leave a good review on whatever platform you're listening from today. I am speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Cheryl Bridges-Johns and Dr. Juanuldo Borici. Cheryl is visiting professor at United Theological Seminary and director of their global Pentecostal House of Studies. She is past president of the Society for Pentecostal Studies and a leading Pentecostal ecumenist. She was a participant in the International Roman Catholic Pentecostal Dialogue and active in the Commission on Faith and Order for the National Council of Churches. She is the author of Pentecostal Formation, A Pedagogy Among the Oppressed, and most recently, Reenchanting the Text, Discovering the Bible as Sacred, dangerous and mysterious. She also has a rich book on menopause and spiritual reflections on menopause, and will provide links to Cheryl's work in the show notes. Juanuldo is a political scientist, lead researcher, and professor in the professional masters of sociology at the Joaquim Nabucco Foundation in Brazil. He's also professor in the postgraduate program in sociology political science at the Federal University of Pornambuco. He was senior lecturer and director of the faith and globalization program at Durham University in the UK and member of the Anglican Consultative Council. Juanuldo is an active lay leader in the Anglican Church in Brazil 
He's the author of Faith in Revolution, an analysis of the Northeastern Conference, and a recent number of articles on religion and politics in South America. Now, pull out your hanky and get ready to wave it. There are many places here where I hope you will feel moved by the Spirit, maybe even moved to say amen. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Now, Cheryl, how are you? And are you living in Cleveland or are you, no, you're living on a farm still somewhere. Yeah. Um, here in Cleveland, Tennessee, my husband and I have a small hobby farm, 10 acres. Uh, we raise uh, Dexter cattle, little miniature-like cows that are really cool cows. Um, so yeah, I'm here in Cleveland, which is near the southeastern corner where North Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee come converge, sort of. And it's a beautiful mountainous area. Lovely. It is beautiful. And are you still raising blueberries? I think last time I saw you in 2008, you had a blueberry industry. We are. Well, and it hasn't been doing too well. This year was a bad blueberry year. And last year, it just depends like um, how late you, if you get a late freeze or if too much rain or not enough rain. This year, it wasn't that much. When did we meet Noel in 2008? We... I think it was 2008, and it was in a feminist theology class, and Barb Searcy, rest in peace, was the, I think she was the professor of the feminist theology course, and then um, she had to to take a break or something, and you stood in, and also Daniela Augustine mm-hmm. stood in, so we had three professors of that course that year. So were you at Lee at that time? I was. I was doing okay. graduate work. So my background, Juanildo, is actually Pentecostal. I grew up in the Church of God, the same denomination as Cheryl, and I'm currently in the Anglican world, the Anglican communion. Um, so this is a, also a convergence of worlds for me personally, but mm-hmm. it's not a surprising one. It never is. Okay. Now I have you identified. And then you went to Duke, right? You went yes, to Duke. Yes, that's that. right. Oh, wow. Right. Fantastic okay. memory. Yeah, okay. I did. I did. I also have a background in Pentecostalism, uh, a charismatic church more precisely congregationalist charismatic church Mm -hmm. Um, in the 70s in Brazil. I was a teenager. When I joined the Anglican church, I had already um, changed quite a bit of my perspective. So um, I don't say, I can't say I'm, I'm still a Pentecostal, though I do cherish and value the Spirit's gifts and and how contemporary they are but they are it's a very complicated history that i couldn't possibly do it in in a couple of words i just have one more personal question before we dive into all of the serious stuff about global christianity you're both really really busy speaking traveling teaching are you getting any vacation time this summer (laughs) i am (laughs) in two weeks time my daughter who lives in the UK is coming with my granddaughter, five-year-old, oh. and, and, and yeah, son-in-law, and we're going to have about three weeks of joyful encounter. <laughs> wonderful. This sounds so wonderful. How about you, Cheryl? My husband and I were just in Sweden for a couple of weeks. Uh, I was at an ecumenical conference and, and, and things, but we took time to visit some friends and go to the island of Gotland and other places. So it was a mix of, of things and it really was a a great getaway. And then we're going camping next week over here in Cherokee uh, on the reservation area. Ooh, very Mm -hmm. good. I approve. Okay. Good work. Both of you. Good job. Cheryl, Juanildo, thank you so much for being with me today. Last night I was at a picnic with a group of young adults we're all Christians, but we were all, and most of them were, were this group of, of Eastern Orthodox young adults, but we were all from different backgrounds. And so we were talking about our religious backgrounds. And we found out that a few of us had Pentecostal or charismatic roots of one kind or another. And one of the guys in the group had some really good questions about this. And finally, he just said, I guess I just need to spend some time with some charismatics. And I said, yes, you do. You really do if you never have. And I know that charismatics and Pentecostals are not the same thing. I know that from growing up Pentecostal and occasionally hearing a sermon about 
the crazy charismatics. But I would love to explore some of this with you all today. Why do we need to spend some time with Pentecostals? What is it that Pentecostalism is bringing to the table globally to social and political life and also ecclesially, ecumenically? Who are the Pentecostals? And just with all the other things going on in the church world, I mean, this summer, we have the Lambeth Conference. Uh, we have had um, General Convention. Um, the Church of God uh, General Assembly is happening. Uh, the Greek Orthodox folks have a big conference. This, I mean, all kinds of, of big groups, Christian groups, have conferences to talk about who are we, what's our future, what's going on with us. So why should other Christians pay attention to our brothers and sisters who identify as Pentecostal and who seem to be still the fastest growing group of Christians in the world. But first, I'm, I'm curious about your stories, particularly, how each of you came to faith and then ended up in your current traditions, the Church of God and the Anglican Church of Brazil. How'd you come to be in the tradition that you are in now? And when did you develop an interest in Pentecostalism and the global church? I'm what they call fourth generation Pentecostal. My great grandmother uh, went to a camp meeting. I think it was being preached by someone in 1907 who had just come from the Azusa Street revival, and she was filled with the Spirit and vi quite vivacious, I gather, about it. And so her Methodist church expelled her of this. So my great-grandfather said, well, Sally, if you want a place to shout, let's just build you a church. So they began a church there in 1907. Um, she never pastored the church, but was sort of the resident matriarch for a long time. Her portrait hung in the vestibule of the church. So I grew up in this church, um, and it was, a, for me, a, a very healthy environment where I was affirmed in the gifts and callings in my life, and the elders were very kind and um, I was just blessed to be part of that. And then, you know, my academic career became more interested in the movement academically, like um, what are its um, inherent theological presuppositions? So is it because for many decades in the 20th century, Pentecostalism was seen mainly as a sociological phenomena. But what, you know, there was a generation of us who gathered at the Church of God Seminary in mid-80s, which was, you know, how do we drink from our own wells? Who are we? What's our particular hermeneutic faith? I was ha just privileged to be part of a cadre of young scholars during that time to begin to ask those questions and to, on one hand, be very ecumenical uh, to the wider, open to the wider body, but then on the other hand, uh, try to be a bit more confessional and, and hold those two together. That's been my quest is to do that. And I grew up in the Pentecostal Holiness Church. And a few months ago, I returned back to that denomination. So I'm no longer ordained in the Church of God. Um, just issues about women and ministry. I got tired of all that. So I just went back home. Now, you get a certain age. And sometimes you just think, it'd be all right to go back home. And um so I'm back and the uh, International Pentecostal Holiness Church and I'm happy to be back home now. That's lovely. Juanondo, what about you? Well, um, I come from uh, a Christian family, a mixed Christian family. My father was a Catholic and died a Catholic. My mother was an evangelical, then turned uh, Pentecostal and she died that way. Uh, so at the age of about 11, I really developed some interest in church, in church life, church going. And already then I uh, joined a Congregationalist church in Northeast Brazil that was charismatic in orientation. So that's where I uh, first experienced Pentecostalism as a teenager. Then uh, during my early youth, like my 19 years old onwards, I was involved uh, with the InterVarsity mo movement as I joined university in Brazil. And I also got very engaged in, uh, in politics as uh, those were the years when the political opening was taking place during the latest uh, 
Brazilian dictatorship. And, and we were calling for direct elections. We were calling for Christians everywhere to uh, raise up their voices and so on. And that's where my troubles with the charismatic church began, because mainly that church did not encourage any kind of uh, public, you know, uh, speaking or, or, or participation in movements, uh, which had anything to do with politics. And then they also did not tolerate those who insisted in doing that. So I ended up really having to leave the, ch the church then. And I had a small pilgrimage across a, a different uh, number of, of denominations. And that started really, um, uh, you know, opening up quite a bit of my thinking uh, and experience around that personal trajectory. But it was only in the... Um, late 80s uh, and early 90s that I really developed an academic interest in Pentecostalism. When I was finishing my MA in political science and then starting almost immediately my PhD in political science in England in, in, at Essex University, then I, oh, I began really addressing the issue of, you know, Pentecostal roles and contribution to Brazilian uh, politics then. And from then on, everything else will come. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is such an interesting intersection of stories that you both have. So I just want to mention that anytime that either of you might have a question for the other, just let me know and we can go off book and, and uh, you all can, in, can engage one another. Yeah, I just want to say, John Nildo, I don't know how we have not yet met. It's like our interests have been so interconnected and... You know, I just feel like I should know you. <laughs> we should have thought a long time ago. So thank you, Amber, for having us together on this podcast. It's wonderful. Well, I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. I'm very glad to be here. Well, I love this diversity in your stories because as people are listening, they're coming from a variety of places. Our listeners are. And among them are some Pentecostals who are listening also some former Pentecostals, some people interested in Pentecostalism, some people very not interested in Pentecostalism. And there are so many misconceptions about Pentecostals. They are diverse. We are diverse, right? Made up of many communities on a spectrum of theological convictions, including, I mean, unfortunately, including some basic Christian convictions. Some of, some of you get some Pentecostal theology that collides with the creed or at least dialogues with it in some some uh, interesting ways. But in all that diversity, what do all Pentecostals tend to have in common? Because Cheryl, you mentioned this, you know, used to be considered a sociological movement, but now we say, oh, no, 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 this is actually, there are some theological distinctives and maybe still some sociological distinctives as well. So can each of you describe from your perspective, the shape, the feel or the personality of, of Pentecostal Christianity. Joanildo, could you start us off? I think I could say something on two on two counts. Pentecostalism is a form of what I would call popular Christianity from my own Latin American perspective, where Pentecostalism is a mass phenomenon which has more to do with lower middle classes and poor people's uh, religious experiences. It has it, this very distinctive way of bringing up and and around the message of uh, of Jesus of Christianity in a way that communicates uh, very easily with people's experiences can really touch how pe people at the level of their you know most uh, intimate thoughts and 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 affects but also develops a very strong commitment to community life in terms of, of, of churches, in terms of how churches uh, experience themselves uh, locally as agents of goodness and so on. So this is, this is one thing about Pentecostalism, which largely for me explains why it can communicate across so easily and effectively. Uh, over the last few decades, when precisely we have seen the weakening or even destruction of strong social links, social bonds among people, we can find Pentecostalism in this 
strong determination to keep God's revelation open, to keep the history of God's dealings with people open towards the future. It's not so much that you have to be attached to roots and traditions, but that you have to keep your eyes and ears very open to what the Spirit is showing. It's about an exodus uh, uh, spirituality, which, which uh, drives people to, uh, to be aware and sensitive to where the Spirit is blowing and where they are feeling God is calling them to go. So it, some, someone has called Pentecostalism a portable religion, a religion that travels, you know, and it travels lightly because it doesn't bring along lots and lots of ecclesiastical doctrinal formulations and, and institutions and all sorts of rules on how to do things and relies as well very much on the initiative of ordinary believers, ordinary members of the church. Although this does not mean Pentecostal ministry, organized ministry, has a very good uh, practice uh, in terms of how this open initiative of uh, uh, members of the church translates in terms of power relations within the church. And this is a sensitive issue which has led many Pentecostal churches to split sometimes time and time again over questions of personal power being exercised to alienate those who think differently or who have a different view of what ministry should be. Cheryl, how would you put the personality of Pentecostal Christianity in a nutshell? Well, I think John Nudels did such a wonderful job. I could just say, ditto, check off that box. Great. He did such a great job with that. Um, as we've said before, there are many Pentecostalisms, and then you add charismatic traditions, the millions of uh, charismatic Lutherans in Ethiopia. The heart of the movement is the sense that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the Spirit came and stayed and that Pentecost is an ongoing festival, the, the Orthodox tradition or the high feast of the church. Uh, so we would say we're a witness to that feast where it's the um, radicalizing of knowledge and a, a radical epistemology of all flesh uh, can know God and have this intimate experience with God. And that is a very liberating experience uh, for someone who's barely literate, to be a sense that um, they have an anointed prophetic ministry to speak. And maybe in the polis, in the, in the culture, um, they're just nobody. But in, in the church, they become someone significant. And that sort of liberation, most Pentecostals have a view of the closed canon of scripture, but ongoing revelation. And we would be, you know, in line with Roman Catholicism and other traditions in that, that, you know, while the canon of Scripture is closed, uh, the canon of Scripture was not the final word in the sense that um, revelation is ongoing. And I like what John Newdell said, you know, this sense that there's this always an openness to the question of where is the Spirit leading? What, what is the Spirit saying? And how can we respond to that. And I, I do believe that, you know, Pentecostalism is the face of Christianity today in such a way that many people who live in the, the global north do not realize the axis of Christianity has shifted to the global south. Uh, one in 12 people on the planet would identify as Pentecostal. Um, so what does the average Christian look like today? She lives probably somewhere near Brazil, and she's young and probably some form of, of Pentecostal, or she lives in, in Nigeria. Non-white. Non-white, that's it. She doesn't have a white face. So that's the coming face of Christianity. And I don't believe that even those of us who claim the title Pentecostal or identity in North America I don't even think we get this. You know, I just came from an ecumenical conference in Sweden and 
so many of the people there are were, were from Northern Europe. I sat there and thought, this is a form of Christianity. It's great. I appreciate this form of Christianity, but it's so small minority in terms of, of global Christianity. Another thing that John Nudo said was a real sense there of religion made to travel or spirituality. So when you have this adaptability, you, you don't get to put down roots. And when you do not get to put down roots, you can easily become far off from what many of us would consider historic Christian creed faith. And there are movements in Brazil that I find somewhat troubling in the sense that I'm not sure if I would say they are even within the parameters of, of the more Zionist Christianity and other things. And in the States, I'm seeing the same thing. Uh, so when you're not rooted in two places, when you're not rooted in historic Christianity, and when you're not rooted in biblical studies, those two things can be quite deadly together and toxic even. So the strengths, sometimes our very strengths can trip us up. Mm. Yes, absolutely. You want your fire, but you also need your, your fireplace. So I'm hearing y'all say that we need to reckon with Pentecostals, and there's a sense in which we also need them. We need to be listening to Pentecostals and to Pentecostal movements. And this is a place where ecumenism is so vital, but also that Pentecostals need other Christians. And going back to the day of Pentecost, which is about the receiving and the sharing of gifts, of the gifts of God. And Christians can be we can be really resistant to receiving the gifts of other Christian traditions, especially those that are unfamiliar or those that we don't see eye to eye with theologically. But one thing that I've learned just through doing this podcast and talking to many different people is that a crucial part of, of understanding what God is up to among us is, is to be sharing what he's given uh, with each other. So let's move a little more deeply into talking about specifically the gifts of Pentecostalism. And also, I'm sure some of the perils will come up as well. So what gifts and challenges do Pentecostals hold for the church in our time? In this ecumenical conference I was in last week or so, I listed three gifts of the movement that I saw. One was uh, the re-enchantment of the possibility of re-enchanting Christianity. And by re-enchanting, I, I, I mean a sense of connecting things that were disconnected through the history of the Enlightenment and other things, uh, reason and emotion, heaven and earth, the spiritual and, and mystical with the scientific, so that uh, I think everyone today in the modern world has enchantment deficit disorder, and we're trying to fix it, <laughs> you know, and and I can get lost in and uh, Tolkien and my grandkids get lost in Harry Potter. And, but I do think that Pentecostals offer this um, sensibility that the divisions that were created that tore things apart, they're not necessarily arbitrary divisions and we can work to put them together. I think there are long-term implications of this for uh, caring for the, the creation itself. And if we can re-enchant the cos cosmos, re-enchant the creation to know that, well, like when I'm filled with the spirit, I'm a sign that the whole cosmos will one day be filled. I'm just a witness of that. And that means then that the earth is in a thinner place with the spiritual dimension than we, we could want to think about sometimes. So to care for trees or to care. Uh, I went to a, a church of God in Brazil and in, in, uh, Sao Paulo, that you know, storefront church open to the street. And one of the things they've done in their community is they plant trees. And they planted, when I was visiting, well over 200 trees. And they saw this as a gift to their community. Those kinds of things you don't normally think Pentecostalism. And we do have a real Gnostic strand moving through in the sense that 
it's all, you know, it's all going to burn up one day. And right. But we don't really know who we, we don't know who we are. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. We sometimes don't know that we are sort of a sign of the reuniting of the physical and the spiritual. So re-enchantment to me and what that means for a global climate crisis and sharing of creation, I think is how do we get in touch only by the spirit, I think, to the deep groaning of creation. And how do we hear that groaning and how do we respond? What if the creation began to speak to us? Uh, So for me, they're just radical planetary implications of this, sort of this all flesh inclusiveness. If we look at what we would call the primal identity that we saw at Azusa Street, where there was such racial gender unity that somehow got co-opted if we could keep those gifts um, and another gift I think is that we can try to be interlockers between the global north and south some of us are dual language in the sense that we can speak some of the language of the global south Mm. um, the language of exorcism the language of whatever Absolutely. But we also can speak the language, some of us, of, of more of the global north, of more structured, reason-based. How can we help a Lutheran in Minnesota learn to talk to the Lutheran in Ethiopia? Absolutely. So I might be able to help kind of, you know, we can say, well, I think you're saying the same thing, but you're using different language or whatever. So those, those three things. That is that is very radically Pentecostal in the in the deepest meaning of the word radical. I mean, goes right back to the day of Pentecost, where people were some people were saying, "What are they saying? They must be drunk." But the ones who were yeah. tuned in were saying, "Well, obviously they're proclaiming the praises of God." Mm-hmm. So there was some translation at work also uh-huh. on that day, which is a really oh, beautiful. Yeah which is a really beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit. And I just wanted to interject briefly, bringing these together, the the vocation of interlocution and also this ecological vocation and the the re-enchantment of creation. I remember the first time that I read um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, A Hundred Years of Solitude, and this was my introduction to magical realism, quote-unquote, as a literary genre. Mm -hmm. And I started reading it, and I thought, wait a second— this is a genre. This is, isn't this how the world actually is? I mean, I don't mean like you open a journal and butterflies fly out of it or all the, you know, crazy things that happen in this book, but crazy things happen in this world. And as I was reading it and reading Flannery O'Connor and reading authors that use exaggeration or uh, magical realism in their work, I just thought this is how the world actually works. Growing up Pentecostal, this is the viewpoint that I had was that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know that Marcus's book is based in the story of a Brazilian millenarian movement in the late 19th century? No, I didn't. Antonio Conselheiro was a Catholic lay uh, preacher who understood the beginnings of the Republic in Brazil uh, as a kind of sin against God that had to be uh, denounced. And he organized a community of followers in the state of Bahia in northeast Brazil, which resisted the Brazilian Republican state to the point that the army was sent to uh, finish that experience. Wow. Wow. And it did in the worst possible way, you know, with the use of technology that had not been deployed before to um, to uh, really repress that kind of movement. So it's, it's of course, a fiction based on historic case. Hmm. Wow. You have to wonder, I mean, was did Marquez grow up Catholic? A revelation of how the world actually is always comes from God. And, and so it seems to me that magical realism is a gift in that way. Now, Juanildo, you earlier, you said that you found resistance when you grew up Pentecostal. You were finding resistance in, in being politically active and interested in the political sphere and, and making change and all this. And so you eventually became Anglican. You had to find a space where your vocation could fit. Yes. Well, now we see Pentecostals and Charismatics and Spirit-filled Christians who would identify as Spirit-filled of all types 
uh, in politics, in the political sphere, especially in in conservative political mm-hmm. spheres. Yeah. So the stage has changed in in North America and South America, although obviously it still remains very complicated. So what do you see as as the gifts and challenges of Pentecostal groups in mm-hmm. the political sociological sphere from where you are? Well, first, I think we need to bring context into this because to really be true to what we have said, and I agree that there are different forms of Pentecostalism. And, and, and I would like to compare and contrast how Pentecostalism grew in Latin America, uh, mostly from my Brazilian background, but I, I could also venture to say that that applies to other uh, contexts in Latin America, like Chile, for instance, which was the first place in South America where Pentecostalism really emerged. So um, Protestant missions in Latin America and in Brazil, uh, before Pentecostalism, they uh, were not oriented towards the general population for different reasons. One of them was the official nature of Catholicism as the state religion in those countries, which did not allow for open preaching to be done and did not allow for any church-like building to be built where people would gather to celebrate from uh, a Protestant faith. So, for reasons that they did not choose, but then for other reasons that they did choose, traditional missionaries to uh, South America and other parts of Latin America, they chose a narrow segment of the population to address as the focus of their missionary action. And, And that means Protestantism across Latin America was very much a combination of an attempt to reach the uh, urban middle classes and the rich, the leaders, but on the other hand, also starting uh, to venture forms of including uh, ordinary people into the community. So we can can both say that the uh, preaching was tilted towards those privileged groups in those societies, but on the other hand, it also made room for some uh, poorer folks. But it did not happen that way with Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism started among the poor, grew among the poor, and only by the early 80s, we can say that some real access started to take place of Pentecostalism among the middle classes and and more better educated people, richer people, and so on. So from there, I would say one of the gifts Pentecostalism brings to this environment from the perspective of a Protestant faith is its very widespread understanding of the gospel being meant for anyone. The church is about any person who responds to the gospel's preaching. And that creates a potential highly inclusionary dimension to Pentecostal Pentecostal churches, which can be coupled with a second gift, which is an understanding of the universal priesthood of believers that allows for and stimulates ordinary people to exercise their gifts in church and for the church. So when you connect both things, you have a potential radical grassroots understanding of what Christianity is about. And there's one thing which may be another way of saying what Cheryl calls uh, re-enchantment. And it is what I, I would say is a double reading of reality, of life. A reading which can say things about things as they happen and as they appear, but always finds a spiritual dimension or connection about anything that you're really, uh, you know, experiencing in life. So the the spiritual and the historical, social, cultural, everyday dimensions of life, they are not separate. So this thing about living a spirituality that is only for myself and by myself is strange to a faith that is looking at everything around 
and finding both its own uh, form of appearing and being and a spiritual lesson, a spiritual aspect, a spiritual threat to be addressed. So this double reading of reality, I think, is very helpful for Christians to go about their everyday commitments and, and their public commitments as well. And I'm not going very much into how much they get this right, mm -hmm. but at least I think this is a gift mm -hmm. that can bring uh, a very rich, is potentially, again, very rich in terms of how spirituality can be connected with everyday life and with historic life. Thank you. And could you give us a specific example of how you see this gift playing out either in the, the political sphere, either in Brazil or somewhere else in the world, an example that pops to mind of, of where you're seeing this play out in a, a positive way, or maybe mainly positive, even if there are some complications? I think a good example is when Pentecostal leaders and grassroots lay people can find ways in which they address the challenge of poverty, understanding that poverty seriously undermines human dignity and can brutalize people and can dehumanize people. And together with this understanding of uh, poverty, there are elements which point to the operation of very powerful forces of evil that need to be addressed and maybe even exercised. And on the other hand, um, finding elements of compassion, of love within this very same spirituality to be able to provide people with forms of preaching that do not lay blame on them that do not make them doubly victims of their own poverty. Because this is also a, a kind of a temptation that we find sometimes in, uh, in other cases where Pentecostals and charismatic uh, Christians can be quite uh, judgmental and dismissive of why people are poor and why it is so difficult to overcome poverty. So when we find churches, and we do find them, that are able to address poverty, both as a historic social phenomenon, and also draw elements of compassion for poor people that can raise them up, both spiritually and humanly, socially, then I think you have an example of these things I talked about. We are thrilled to announce at The Living Church the release of the first two volumes under our brand new publishing imprint, Living Church Books. The books are God Wills Fellowship, Lambeth Conference 1920, and the Ecumenical Vocation of Anglicanism, and When Churches in Communion Disagree. Ian Markham, the Dean of Virginia Theological Seminary, says this remarkable collection of essays brings wisdom, insight, and careful analysis to the complexities of living with disagreement, an important book that has the potential to change the contours of the debate. What is this communion that we're in? What is its calling into the future? Please join us in that conversation. You can find both volumes in paperback on Amazon or click the link in the show notes today. Cheryl, when you look at the history of the Pentecostal Church in the United States, what do you see in this vein of Pentecostals involved in political movements, in political actions and activities, uh, social justice? What do you see when you when you look at the history or the present day in, in North America for Pentecostalism? Well, I, I see some parallels with what John Neodell was saying that early Pentecostals were quite skeptical of political powers and uh, for the most part were marginalized from the polis, had little political clout. So it doesn't mean I don't think that they spoke prophetically or worked. I see that that did happen. 
But that began to change, I think, especially in what some of us call the evangelicalizing of Pentecostalism during the mid-20th century when many Pentecostal groups joined the National Association of Evangelicals and the rise of the religious right in the late 70s and 80s. And then the, the real courtship that began from the right to evangelicals, Pentecostals were included in that and in some ways gave up some of their more primal identity markers in order to kind of become card-carrying parts of this. So it is, for me right now, very difficult in watching what has happened and the implications of that in the Trump era and how some of the very things that we've talked about, about marks of our movement, the radical inclusiveness, the empowering of the poor, the, the re-enchant, all of that is in danger by this, what we call Christian nationalism. So it's a difficult thing to kind of push back on. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to what John Nudo was saying. I think he said there's a double reading. I want to give a double reading. I'm going to go real full-blown Pentecostal here. There's this sociopolitical realm, but I think there's something else at stake, some dark powers, seducing powers. I could go, you know, could talk Jungian language of the shadow side of a culture that sometimes gets activated and the shadow side is being activated. And uh, people that I had known and loved and respected I find that they have become hard toward the poor, hard toward immigrants in a sense that I find it very disconcerting and almost terrifying. Let's just get the meanest bully elected to to do our work. And I think maybe some of that's happening in Brazil with Bolsonaro. But this sense that now that we have power, you know, it's never good to get that ring of power. You just brought Tolkien in there. Good job. Yeah. I just saw the trailer of the new thing coming out. So. Half of my listeners, their hearts just beat a little faster. <laughs> yeah, it was such a, it's such a temptation. Christianity has never done well in it, in the close of empire. So we haven't learned. And I, I pray that that God God's spirit is powerful to change, to transform. God's love is always abundant and even in judging us, maybe letting us have our way with this uh, time. Uh, but it's a sobering, it's a sobering time for me. So pray, discern, do the best we can to to be good citizens and call our movement to using Walter Brueggemann's language of the prophetic imagination, call our, you know, call our movement to some of its primal faith that's all, that's there. It's there. You know, we just have to bring that back. Brazil, in particular, has gone very much along those roads, which is quite worrisome and, um, and frankly annoying that we <laughs> find in here so many voices in the name of faith, in the name of what is called now very openly the Christian majority in the country, calling for and sanctioning actions that are very clearly anti-Christian or non-Christian and laying the laying the weight of Christian churches into uh, legitimizing forms of politics that have nothing to do with the Christian faith and very much come in opposition to much of what the churches have struggled to establish as a Christian witness for many, many decades in Brazil, including the Catholic Church. Right-wing Christians have taken hold of the Christian voice as if this were the voice of Christianity in general. Mm -hmm. And they moved from a time when Pentecostals were very much calling for minority rights to extend it towards them to a point in which now they are disparaging and persecuting minorities in the name of a Christian majority. You know, so, so I think this is something very real and, and very troubling and is beginning to create a kind of counter-narrative to Christianity 
among people within churches and outside of churches who just can't take that any longer as, uh, you know, as a genuine expression of, uh, of a Christian group, insensitive to uh, those vulnerable groups in society who condone violence as a form of dealing with conflicts, uh, who are completely insensitive to the climate emergencies that we are living through and who are connecting in a very direct way, getting rich with being blessed. Because Pentecostals form two-thirds of all Brazilian Protestants and over 60% of all Latin American Protestants, the fact that Protestant Christians are going that way makes Pentecostals a very strong part of this story. Thank you both so much. I mean, the gifts and the beauty and also the complexities and the shadow side of what Pentecostals are saying and the witness that they're giving to the the day of Pentecost and apostolic Christianity in very tangible ways and very fresh ways, but also the allurements of wealth, the allurements of influence, the allurements of empire that really twist that and put us, put Christians in a state of unity and alliance in negative ways. We do need unity, but there are also negative ways in which we can be unified. As a final question, I would like to frame it within one of the doctrines that I grew up with in the Pentecostal church that I think people will hear and some people will go, yay, and some people will go, oh, not that. And it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, you know, that sounds good to me. A good old baptism in the Holy Spirit sounds good to me because the Pentecostal gifts, properly speaking, include tongues, the ability to to speak to many different kinds of people as well as interpretation. And right now we're dealing with a lot of language and abusive language in, in the public sphere. Christians are saying the same things, but meaning polar opposite things by what they're saying. I mean, it's the use of language is, is just crazy, the ways that we're, we're able to misunderstand each other right now. The discernment of spirits. Um, things don't always, they're not always as they appear, and sometimes they very much appear a certain way, and it's time to call a spade a spade. Also, wise administration and wise leadership, uh, prophetic voices, and having an ear to hear a prophetic voice. What is an actual prophetic voice and what's someone speaking out of their own passions? And then the fruits of the Spirit. And then, of course, as you've both mentioned, um, gifts of exorcism and just owning that as Christians and people becoming, frankly, trained in doing it and doing it well. So these are all Pentecostal gifts. So my, my question for you is, with what we've talked about today, with where we are you know, in the world, what would a baptism in the Holy Spirit look like to you? What would you know a baptism in the Holy Spirit look like for North American Christians? What could it look like for Brazilian Christians? How might that affect us and change us? If you comb through early Pentecostal literature, one of the more common threads about baptism of the Spirit was that in many ways it was synonymous with the baptism of love. And that kind of got lost with this sense of baptism of power. But I do believe that the baptism of the Spirit is first and foremost a great deep dive into the depths of God's love and becoming overwhelmed with that love and a channel of that love and a sense that it's that love that that redeems and saves the world. And I would love to see more of this understanding of the baptism of the Spirit as a baptism of holy love. And then that reaches out into how we exercise the gifts of the Spirit and how we live and how we speak and the fruit of the Spirit born. And that it's a way of knowing the world, what Martha Nussbaum calls love's knowledge. So that it's an epistemology of love. To know the world is to love the world. To know God is to love God. And, you know, I just kind of went through some recent travails in terms of sort of this online attacks about me being woke, liberal. Just, you know, you can take the playbook. And I found myself really at times just getting angry and bitter. 
But the Lord has given me this delightful baptism of love during the whole time. And it's, it's a love that draws me closer to, to Christ. But it's also a love that draws me outward, even to my enemies, so-called enemies. And I don't know how I could do that apart from the Spirit. And in some ways, these travails that I've gone through with these attacks and all, have been a delightful time, and that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it really doesn't make sense. Are you boasting in your sufferings, Cheryl? I am boasting right now, <laughs> yeah, because it just doesn't. And I have, I've just been grateful how the Lord has just lavished on me His love during a time when, you know, you get all these almost daily online attacks and things, and then just this lavishing of love. So I do believe that... For me, that's the critical place where Pentecostalism needs to go. I think um, the spirit is the actualization of Jesus absent after the ascension. And it means the church can only exist in the spirit. And of course, the church can exist institutionally, as an organization without the spirit, and it has been in many ways uh, so, many, so many times, but uh, an authentic Christian church must have this connection with the spirit because without, the spirit is God among us today, as God showing us the way, as God making us able to discern the, our ways and our surroundings and what we should be thinking and doing, the Spirit is also the, the guarantee that there's freedom in the church. Without freedom, the Spirit cannot operate. You know, so I think that we need to reconnect, to have a richer understanding of the Spirit's work within the church. People can become proud of the, the gifts they have. So that kind of individualistic take on, on, on uh, the Spirit's gifts, I think, is very much against the understanding of a baptism in the Spirit, which is hmm. a, both a corporate uh, experience for the church and, of course, a grace from God to each one of us. And I do hope that we can find uh, from within Pentecostalism itself, where I am in Brazil and in some Latin American uh, uh, countries, ways of uh, resisting the trends that Cheryl mentioned and that I uh, uh, reinforced in my previous uh, comment. Uh, because I think they are driving uh, Christian churches further and further away from where the Spirit would be willing to point the church at this, at this uh, moment in history, at this moment in time. Hmm. I grew up always hearing about the power of the Spirit, as Cheryl said, and I imbibed doctrine about the love of the Spirit through the people who loved me and took care of me in the Pentecostal church, but not as much explicit teaching. And uh, some altar calls were pretty, they're pretty radical. Some of them were pretty scary to a young girl. As I've gotten older, I've learned from dialoguing with fellow Christians, just from my own discipleship and, and, and being in, in church, that um, it's the image of, of the dove who flies around until it can find a good place to land. So, um, Maybe what revival means partly is is becoming that green olive tree in the house of the Lord, becoming tender, um, asking to be tenderized, to be supple, to have the heart softened so that the Holy Spirit can find a place to land and rest and continue to build the nest <laughs> and lay the eggs and, you know, whatever. I don't know how else to expand that metaphor, but um, I'm going to stop there before my pneumatology just gets um, completely well, out preach. of control. Will that preach? That will preach, and I'm going to use it, but I'll give you credit. That oh, okay. Well, I've been speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Cheryl Bridges-Johns and Dr. Juanildo Borici. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. It was a privilege.
Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Our producer is Drew Miller. In our most recent issue of the magazine, as of this air date, the August 28th issue, there is an article by Melissa Williams Sombrano on Anglican relationships with Pentecostals in Latin America. If you're not a Living Church subscriber, it's a great time to be one. Try us for a year. We're a unique resource for Christian leaders with an Anglican Episcopal eye, a friendly voice, and an ecumenical heart. Become a subscriber today by clicking the link in the show notes. In the coming weeks, we have a back-to-school conversation about ministry to recent grads and young adults, and that Lambeth follow-up conversation will be hot on its heels. Until then, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.